I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hey, this is Whitney Terrell. Subscribers will recognize me as the co-host of the Fiction Nonfiction podcast. I'm just stepping in here to say that we recorded this interview with Rebecca Solnit on February 21st because that was a time that worked for her. And we are releasing it now on March 12th because her book is out, which seemed to make a lot of sense. One thing we didn't plan on, however, was Senator Elizabeth Warren dropping out of the presidential race. So at the end of her interview, Rebecca talks about her support for Elizabeth Warren and her feelings about her presidential run. We wanted to leave that in so you could hear what she had to say, but understand it was recorded before we knew what would happen in the race. Enjoy. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. I feel like we don't need to do any banter for this one or even have a news peg. What? You're, that's the thing. Everyone does banter at the beginning. You, that's, that's what the podcasting manual says. You really want to banter when we have Rebecca Solnit on the line. Okay. No banter. And our news peg is that Rebecca Solnit has a new book out, Recollections of My Non-Existence, and she's going to talk to us about it. I bet most of our listeners know the rest of this, but in case they don't, writer, historian, and activist Rebecca Solnit is the author of more than 20 books, including Whose Story Is This?, Call Them By Their True Names, which won the 2018 Kirkus Prize for Nonfiction, Men Explain Things to Me, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, Wanderlust, A History of Walking, and River of Shadows, Edward Moybridge, and the Technological Wild West for which she received a Guggenheim, the National Books Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism, and the Linen Literary Award. She's a columnist at The Guardian and a regular contributor to the best website that we know and love, Literary Hub. Uh, and she is from kindergarten to graduate school, a product of California's public schools. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Lovely to be here. I'm a Lit Hub contributor and a huge fan, so I'm thrilled to 
be I here. Think, I think we share an editor. Do you work with Johnny Diamond when you're doing your writing for them? Happily, I do. All right. So, Recollections of My Non-Existence, your new memoir out this month. And, and that memoir uh, begins in a very specific place, an apartment that you moved into when you were 19 and proceeded to live in for the next 25 years or so. Could you talk about that apartment and how you arrived in it? Absolutely. Super Bowl Sunday of 1981, a week after Ronald Reagan's inauguration, a huge watershed for the course of American and maybe world history. I was a poor 19-year-old living in an SRO hotel, a single-room occupancy residential hotel that was pretty dirtbag, hoping for something better, being laughed at because I had $200 a month to spend, which wasn't much even then, looking at back in those days when it was all newspapers, the newspaper ads. And I went to look at an apartment I didn't realize was in the heart of a black neighborhood. I rang the door, got got to this place, this part of town I'd never been to before in San Francisco, rang the doorbell, building manager let me in. I went up to the third floor, saw this luminous little place, a studio apartment, but with an eat-in kitchen and light and bay windows and lovely features and went down and told him, I really, really want this. And he was so kind. And he said, well, if you want it, you should have it. And he handed me the application. And I just, my heart sank because that company had already rejected me. I had filled out the form, brought it to their little slumlord office, and they looked at my income and dropped it distastefully into the wastebasket <laughs> in front of me. And so Mr. Young, my building manager, who became this huge force in my life, said, if you get some older woman to cover for you to apply, I won't ever tell them any different. And so with his encouragement, I got my mom who barely went out on a limb for me to do it this one time. They gave her the lease. I lived there illicitly for the next several years and then managed to finagle legalizing myself so I wasn't so easy to evict. And, you know, it was this remarkable thing. Here was this black man, World War II vet, part of the Great Migration, who'd never seen me before, who did this really kind thing for me. And neither of us really knew how kind it was because who the hell thought I was going to stay for 25 years? And the whole story of my formative years of becoming a writer of the first dozen books or so that I wrote is all about that apartment, the that place it gave me, the sanctuary, this place to focus, this place to become, this kind of cocoon that I, you know, went into as a caterpillar and well, at least came out of as a social moth. <laughs> <laughs> I love the character, not... Mr. Young. He's so he's so great. I mean, that is that I think, you know, I teach mostly fiction writing and I'm always telling my students to have their characters be mean to each other. And I was struck by the immense kindness, as you note, of of his gesture and the power, the propelling power of that into the narrative. There were other things I wanted to talk about. And this is very much a book about male violence and et cetera. But long before I knew I was going to write this book, I'd wanted somehow to acknowledge just this extraordinary encounter between strangers and this man who went way out on a limb for me with a gift 
whose dimensions neither of us could comprehend. He died at the end of the 80s, so he never knew that I was going to be there for 25 years, and I never did either. But it was so important, and I'm about to try and write a piece for The Guardian about something I didn't go into in depth because this isn't what the book was about, but I came of age in a much easier time for struggling kids, and I was a kid whose parents had taken a permanent financial vacation from me. Is that the polite way to put it? (laughs) And um, I was, you know, I'd been financially independent since I was 17. I was pretty poor. And, um, you know, but I was in a world that was really different financially in the relationship between minimum wage and rent and the amount of social services and student aid, the level of tuition, etc. So I was struggling, but I was struggling under much more auspicious circumstances than a kid in the same circumstance. This kid, the kid in my family circumstances would be in now with, you know, minimum wage, rent, tuition, uh, student loans, and etc. So I just want to give a nod to that because in some ways I had a tough time, but in some ways it was so much less tough than it is for young people who don't have big financial backing now. And I just want to give a shout out to, I see you and I see that it's tough and I want to elect someone who will change it, please. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, In the very first line of the book, before we get to the apartment, you talk about looking at yourself in a mirror and mirrors have you know, appeared in, in other works of yours and feeling as though you were, quote, vanishing from the world. And this apartment in this specific neighborhood feels so incredibly and beautifully concrete in your memory. So I'm curious if you could talk about how that place was an anchor against non-existence in some way. Yeah, the book is called Recollections of My Non-Existence because... As a young woman, I was faced both with the incredible threat of annihilation of being raped, murdered, etc. that faces young women so ordinarily that we don't really talk about it as the devastating, catastrophic, horrific epidemic that we should talk about it as. But also, how do you avoid being annihilated by erasing yourself, by not going here, by not wearing that, is what they always tell you, by not by not showing up, by, you know, you're constantly counseled as a young woman to not do, be, say, wear, drink, eat, have, be, and you're told to disappear so that you won't disappear. But it's also about so many other kinds of non-existence. I'm living in a black neighborhood that was being gentrified is a layer dealing with Native American genocide as an activist later, you know, a decade or so later is a layer at um, living in queer culture with the annihilation and disappearance and the AIDS crisis. There's so many layers. But so for this book... You know, I wrote about Mr. Young and I wrote about this apartment that was really magic and still is so deeply entrenched in my psyche that sometimes when I'm thinking of like, oh, I should go brush my teeth, it's that bathroom that comes up in memory, even though it's, you know, more than a dozen years behind me. And I went to the old neighborhood 
And I had, and that was the address I automatically gave the taxi driver to go home, even though that's three addresses ago. It was just this beautiful little place, classic San Francisco, 1920s apartment, a main room with coved ceilings and a south and an east bay window full of sunlight, uh, you know, hardwood floors, nice picture molding, glass paneled doors with crystal doorknobs that to me just were like otherworldly in their loveliness. And I just couldn't believe that I could have a place that felt so big at the time after living in maids rooms in Paris and this SRO hotel where I probably had like 100, 150 square feet at most. And um, and so beautiful. And I really loved the place, which is part of why I stayed there. And of course, the longer I stayed, the cheaper it became in relationship to the market, which made it harder to imagine moving uh, and so, you know, I just really dug in and filled it with books and it turned into a kind of, dip, you know, ad hoc natural history museum full of ant- antlers, antlers and bones and uh, dried, you know, dried flowers and twigs and branches and bird's eggs and specimens of all kinds. And I but so really, r- related to ahead. that just because yeah. I – I. I mean, first of all, I think any writer will relate to the way that you talk about light in the apartment because writers are there all day, so they track the light moving through their apartment, you know, other than like people who go to work or, you know, go off to jobs. And, <laughs> and I had a place like that that I wrote, wrote about, I've written about for uh, John Freeman, who's also associated with LitHub, mm-hmm. uh, a house that I moved into in the early 90s when I was done with college that I could afford to live in that was also in a black neighborhood here in Kansas City, not far from where I live now. And then I lived in for a, a, a ten years, uh, and and it was just a crucial. It was cheap because of reasons that you write about in the book. Because uh, property in African American neighborhoods is unfairly devalued, um, but so there's so much in what you were talking about that I related to. But there's a description of your desk in the in the in in this apartment that did take me aback and was very different than anything that I would ever have thought about. Because, um, and it's very different from the way that maybe that I or maybe any other male writer in the history of literature would describe a desk. And I wondered if you could talk about that and maybe read that passage to us. A friend gave me a desk not long after I moved into the apartment, a woman's small writing desk or vanity, the one I am writing on now, and literally the one I'm sitting at as I read this. It's a dainty Victorian piece of furniture, with four narrow drawers, two on each side, a broader central drawer above the bay into which the sitter's legs go, and various kinds of ornamentation, dowled legs, each with a knob like a knee, knobby ornaments, scallops on the bottom of the drawers, drawer pulls like tassels or teardrops. There are two pairs of legs on the front, two on the back, set beneath the side drawers. Despite all the frills, The old desk is fundamentally sturdy, an eight-legged beast of burden whose back has carried many things over the decades, or two beasts of burden side by side, yoked together by the desktop. The desk has moved with me three times. It's a surface on which I've written millions of words, more than 20 books, reviews, essays, love letters, several thousand emails to my friend Tina during the years of our near daily epistolatory exchange a few hundred thousand other emails, some eulogies and obituaries, including those of both of my parents. 
a desk at which I did the homework of a student and then a teacher, a portal onto the world and my platform for reaching out and diving inward. A year or so before she gave me the desk, my friend was stabbed 15 times by an ex-boyfriend to punish her for leaving him. She almost bled to death. She had emergency transfusions. She was left with long scars all over her body, which I saw then without response, because whatever capacity to feel had been muffled, maybe when I got habituated to violence at home, maybe because it was something we're supposed to take in stride and be nonchalant about, back when few of us had language to talk about such violence or an audience ready to listen. She survived. She was blamed for what happened, as victims often were, then and now. There were no legal consequences for the would-be murderer. She moved far from where it happened. She worked for a single mother who was evicted and who gave her the desk in lieu of wages, and then she gave it to me. She moved on, and we lost touch for many years, and then reestablished it, and she told me the full story, a story that can make your heart catch fire and the world freeze over. Someone tried to silence her. Then she gave me a platform for my voice. Now I wonder if everything I've ever written is a counterweight to that attempt to reduce a young woman to nothing. All of it has literally arisen from that foundation that is the desktop. Sitting at that desk to write this, I went to the online photography archive of the city that my public library maintains, hoping to recall a little of what the old neighborhood looked like. The fourth photograph for the street I lived on was from June 18, 1958, of a house a block and a half away, and it bore this caption. Curious passers-by peer down an alley alongside 438 Lyon Street, where the body of Dana Lewis, 22, nude except for a black bra, was found today. Police, after a preliminary examination, said bruises on the victim's throat indicated she might have been garroted by a length of rope. It's clear her death is a spectacle for the newspaper as well, which describes her in titillating terms, while the passers-by are described as curious rather than distressed by the sight of a corpse. She was also known as Connie Sublette, and it turns out her death got a lot of attention in the papers at the time. Mostly the accounts blamed her for it because she was a sexually active young bohemian who drank. Seaman describes casual slaying, said one headline with the tag, Playgirl Victim. Slaying closes sordid life of playgirl, said another, in which sordid seemed to mean she, that she had sex, adventures, and sorrows, and playgirl meant she deserved it. Her age is given as 20 or 24. Dana Lewis, or Connie Sublette's ex-husband, was said to have lived at 426 Lion, where she went seeking comfort with him after her boyfriend, a musician, fell to his death at a party. Al Sublette wasn't home or didn't answer, so she wept on his front steps until the landlord told her to go away. A sailor, by his own account, offered to get her a taxi and killed her instead. The newspaper seemed to have taken his word that the killing was an accident and that while devastated by loss, she had agreed to have sex with him in an alley. Beatnik girl slain by sailor looking for love, said one headline, as though strangling someone to death was an ordinary part of looking for love. She had stars in her eyes and wanted to go all the time, said her ex-husband. Allen Ginsberg, who had taken photographs of Al but not of Connie Sublette, noted her death without comment in a letter to Jack Kerouac on June 26, 1958. 
She was known, but hardly mourned. Thank you uh, so much. It's an incredibly powerful uh, section. And of course, part of the power comes the shock of finding uh, the traditionally beloved Allen Ginsberg there at the end, essentially ignoring this woman and her death, which reminds me of a passage much later in the book where you say of beat writers like Kerouac, Ginsberg, and Burroughs, almost all of them despised women. And in this respect, they were entirely conventional and of their time and place. I did say that. Yeah. I mean, when the beats first emerged, everybody was struck by all the ways that they were fresh and new and different and innovative. And they certainly did have beautiful linguistic experiments and a passion for ordinary everyday life that wasn't, you know, fake European groveling and, you know, influences from things like jazz that were really kind of wonderful. But the dudes at the center of what's supposed to be beat culture were mostly misogynists and in that they're no more radical or interesting than John Updike, Philip Roth. Um, oh God, who am I thinking of? Um, Her- Herzog, uh, Saul Bellow and the rest, they seem to live as so many writers before about 10 minutes ago, so many male writers did before about 10 minutes ago, in a world where women were appurtenances, accessories, orifices, helpmeets, but not exactly people. And they were so lionized when I was a young woman, particularly because I was in San Francisco, which has really dined out on its beat mythology for the last 50 years. And coming of age in a world while tr- and trying to become a writer in a world where the most lionized writers were men who kind of wanted women not to exist, sometimes quite literally with some of William Burroughs' more bizarre fulminations, had a certain impact. So, I mean, one of the examples of this that you give in the book is, you know, you write about an exhibition of Ginsburg photographs and you describe very strikingly Um, you know, the walls were hung with dozens of inscribed black and white prints of his male friends in various places, having adventures, having each other, having the world as their oyster. And then a print or two of Peter Orlovsky's mentally ill mother and sister sitting on the edge of a bed, sad, stranded, and hopeless. I just thought about all the stories where, um, yeah, you know, the, the girl in the corner, the girl at the edge of the picture and, um, the way that this appears across all different arts, Yeah, we in the West are so entrenched in the Odyssey template where the man roams the world having adventures and being heroic and the woman stays home. And, you know, I also wrote about Jack Kerouac's On the Road, which is exactly the the male protagonist roaming the world having adventures. But I noticed, and I'd never really thought this before, wow, Homer was a lot more interested in Penelope than Kerouac is in any of his female characters. And that says a lot because Homer wrote a bit earlier than Kerouac did. (laughs) And we would like to see some sort of progress rather than regress. And we know from Mary Beard's The Public Voice of Woman how much the Greeks of that era hated you know, women to even have a voice. The Odyssey opens with Telemachus, Telemachus telling his mother to shut up and we're off and running um, for the next 2,500 or so years. 
So yeah, the Ginsburg exhibit, I had this really visceral response to that surprises me looking back on it because in so many ways in that point in history, we were just so used to women not being part of the conversation, being written out of the story or being pushed to the margins. But this time it infuriated me and I had this deep urge I can still remember vividly of wanting to shout. I somehow, I can't even remember if Ginsburg was there to do a reading or not. So I've kind of erased him back, but I wanted to shout to disrupt the whole little, little um, cozy self-congratulatory event and to shout that I was not disrupting it because I did not exist because women clearly did not exist in this world. And I, at the same time that I knew, of course, this would reinforce exactly what those, the only two women in the show suggested, which is that women are sad and don't really belong at the party and can't really, you know, go anywhere and et cetera. So of course, and of course I never did anything quite like that, but just that urge was so powerful. And at the time it, I, somebody probably, if I ever confided that to anybody, somebody might have convinced me like, oh, you're exaggerating, you're out of line, blah, blah, blah. But there's so many things that you can look at some of my firsthand experiences with other beats, although there's some very nice people. And uh, Philip Whalen once gave me a cherry lifesaver. Um, but, um, you know, there was this core of men who didn't quite want women to exist and who really celebrated masculine camaraderie, masculine freedom, masculine desire. And it made it harder to be a, not a man and wanting to be a writer, wanting to be a voice, wanting to be a participant in the little experiment of culture and civilization. When I was reading this passage, I wondered, um, I was thinking about, you know, all the times I've been silently furious in public and how many times my speaking up has relied on my leaning over perhaps to a friend sitting next to me and making my comment quietly and then that person encouraging me to speak up. And I wondered, do you remember, were you at that Ginsburg? Uh, I was exhibition? alone. Yeah, I was just, yeah, I was no, wondering. I, one of the things I'm not sure is clear enough is so many of the things people do in groups when they're young, going to movies and shows and walking around and et cetera. And because I was so bad at connecting to human beings and that I did so much of it alone. So I was alone at that show. There was no one to say like, hey, this really sucks. We'd say like, yeah, it totally does suck. And often that's all you need. And that's so much of what I think young women give each other is this validity that this validation that your experience is legitimate and real and shared and whatever it brings up in you is okay and that you didn't imagine things. Because, of course, the other thing that happens to young women all the time is they're being told only to have thoughts and feelings that are flattering and convenient to other people. And so they shouldn't think that there's misogyny or, uh, in a, you know, or that they're being shut out or that, you know, and they're always being told that didn't happen and you're overreacting and also you're hysterical and also you're incapable of perceiving reality and no one will believe you. So don't even try, but I get ahead of myself. And that's part of the, that's part of the kind of non-existence is that sense of not being part of the conversation of and if you do speak up being told that that didn't happen and you're not capable of being a witness to your own experience anyway so shut up you know and this of course pertains particularly to um 
experiences of violence, particularly gender violence, where women show up. And this is on the day that the Harvey Weinstein trial may come to a conclusion. Uh, and so we're still seeing this, but women are told that they're not reliable witnesses. They're not capable of perceiving what's happening. And so there's so many ways you get shut out. So you see something like this Ginsburg show. Can you protest it? No, because it would only confirm the stories about women as not fit to be participants. So you're in that double bind of be silent or be silenced if you accept the frameworks and if you let those be the people you want to talk to. And sometimes they have to be if they're the judge and the juries, the police, uh, the other people in the room, the, the publishers and editors, the, you know, the, the people who have power in your life. Rebecca, speaking of publishers, you also write quite a bit about the way that your early encounters with publishers made you feel, you know, including the famed Lawrence Ferlinghetti, made you feel as if your desire to shout about your non-existence had a basis. And I wonder if you could talk about that in publishing in particular. Yeah. And I don't, and here I just want to say for the record, I think my experiences were very kind of average and I never saw this as being a book about, oh, poor me, I had a particularly difficult time. It's about like, look, I had a pretty average time for a young woman in my circumstances. And the average experience was so full of hate and resentment and menace and threat and silencing and exclusion. Let's talk about that. There's a lot of memoirs, feminist memoirs centered around one exceptionally horrific thing happening usually with one perpetrator or one group of perpetrators. And that's a larger thing I'd love to interject here, that we are used to memoirs being wholly personal accounts and and kind of your basis for writing a memoir is that something maybe exceptional happened to you, often exceptionally awful, and now you're going to somehow overcome it through transforming your life, leaving your abuser, going through some sort of process of growth. And this is a book about everyday ordinary misogyny, which was not something I was going to overcome in my personal life because leaving Earth wasn't an option. <laughs> and and wasn't you know wasn't something that I should adapt to by accepting as okay uh, not on my own behalf not on the behalf of the you know four billion other female people on this planet and um, you know and the most extreme thing that I faced was the threat of violence sometimes in personal situations not all of which were in this book and the actual violence I grew up with and um, but but I felt like the same basis, the same desire to annihilate women exists in much more genteel and non-physical forms throughout the society. We get written out of the story. We be told, we get told we're not credible witnesses to our own lives. And my first two publishing experiences were full of these pretty remarkably hostile experiences, uh, including a letter that said if we destroyed all copies of my book, there wouldn't be a libel suit from a man who is lying that I had libeled him. And, um, you know, and then my first publisher was Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and he has never spoken a word to me. And that doesn't feel like extreme hostility, but it does feel like weirdness. And, you know, I, I, 
still don't know since we've never spoken, although I did say hello to him probably a few dozen times in the 1980s. And he did say hello to the man standing next to me he'd just met um, when I'd been at City Lights being an author working on a book for a couple of years, but he's never spoken to me. He did send me an email once about eight years ago um, after I did something very nice for City Lights. And, you know, and with Ferlinghetti, I have no idea what's going on, but, you know, if I was going to guess, it would be that the Venn diagram of young blonde women and City Lights authors um, was two circles that did not intersect. So I was categorically non-existent and you can't speak to a person who doesn't exist. So, you know, that's about that's about all, all there is to say about that. And so that was kind of the light and funny stuff in the context of people actively trying to sabotage my books in various ways and, um, you know, telling government authorities that they should reach out and try and suppress the book for, the, for my second book. A uh, crazy alcoholic publicist who tried really hard to bury the book by sending me on a book tour to, as it turned out, bookstores he'd never actually called and made, um, you know, speaking engagements for me at. And this guy who got a lawyer to write us a letter telling us to destroy all copies of my first book because it libeled him. Yeah, I mean, it just sort of, it's, I, it, it's, it's deeply, I mean, of course, it's horrifying to read these stories. It's also satisfying on some level to watch someone actually be able to put these things down on paper. Um, because, you know, I think so many women who write or, 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 you know, gender variant people who are writing find themselves erased in certain ways and don't have space or recourse to say these things. And some of it seems like something that arises just out of the power of time having passed. And also, of course, you're the success of, of so many of your books and the platform that, that that allows and, and also your willingness to speak about it, which must have been something to get to. So, you know, I have wonderful publishers I work with now. I don't, I have nothing to fear so far as I know. And, um, and even though these weren't, you know, the worst experiences, they were bad enough. I felt and they and they felt ordinary enough. I suspect if you're not white, if you're not male, if you're not straight, if you're not cisgendered, you might have had experiences like this in publishing. And they are also a, you know, an there are an experience of people trying to push you out of full participation. And I also say, and I think this is really important: these were obstacles not everybody has to overcome, and that's part of the unequal landscape we live in. I was able to overcome them overall, but that does not mean that they were okay. And that does not mean that everybody was able to overcome them. And I think somewhere in there, when I'm saying that, I say, what doesn't kill you doesn't make you stronger. It makes you anxious, exhausted, and doing work you shouldn't have to do when it comes to, whether it comes to these kind of menace on the street that was so much part of my formative life, or these people really just trying to fuck with you and your ability to publish a book and writing books was the fun part it was me alone with archives and ideas and words and you know publishing as a business and as a writer you're you know now I have a fantastic agent Francis Cody who I love to the moon and back but I didn't have an agent on these first two books and so I was this naive person fighting these battles alone 
against institutions. And I wanted to put that in there as part of a continuum of experience with the street harassment. Also because part of what was happening to me with both the the direct threats of male violence and these publishing experiences, the worst part almost wasn't the things themselves. It was when I went to somebody else to say this happened and they're like, oh, little girl, you're just so worked up that, you know, just you, it's not really happening. And this is part of what's crazy that is so much part of this book is like, here I am, I got a master's degree in journalism at UC Berkeley. I worked as a museum researcher, which was training in like journalism in putting together factually accurate data. I then became a writer of nonfiction, you know, as well as a critic and a journalist. My specific vocation is organizing facts reliably, you know, and then interpretation and opinion kind of come atop that. And yet I'm walking up to people and saying, this just happened. And they're saying like, oh, you're not competent to know what just happened to you. And, you know, that, you know, some years later is part of what Men Explained Things is about. Ultimately, it's not just a man telling you something that you know better than he does. It's the assumption that knowledge is inherent in men as ignorance and capacity is inherent in women. And I write in that essay that I was about 40 and my book Wanderlust had came out when men tried to gaslight me and tell me like, oh, that horrible thing I just did didn't really happen. And I, that was the point at which, you know, when I was almost 40, I was able to say, I just published a really substantial book that has 10,000 pages of footnotes and massive amounts of factual data in it. I think it's time to take myself seriously as a competent witness and, you know, person who's able to remember and organize facts. And it was that professional work that really helped me overcome the way we internalize these instructions that impact women so much uh, that you are not a reliable witness to what just happened five minutes ago and you are certainly never going to be as reliable a witness to yourself, to the man who just said that horrible thing or to any third party you appeal to. And that's a huge piece of non-existence. To, you know, this is ultimately a book about what it means to not have a voice. And, you know, one of the really important parts of this book also is about getting very involved in the Western Shoshone land rights struggle and coming to understand in a deep, visceral, and often firsthand from descendants of survivors' way what that genocide was and being asked to tell that story. There are so many ways people disappear. All of us have some portion of non-existence in our lives. I think even powerful men become powerful men by obeying the rules that make men kill off something and silence it inside themselves, and that's part of the problem. So... Rebecca, um, one of the things that's really interesting listening to you, you write elsewhere in the book about being grateful, having gone through visual art before becoming a writer of nonfiction. And there's a passage on color early in the book and even listening to you talk about landscape and how you're writing about that. I'm thinking about this, too. This is passage on color early in the book that both Whitney and I really liked and thought was key to what you're doing here. And I wonder if you'd be willing to read that for us as well. And one of the things that strikes me in retrospect about this book is that it's not about places 
in the way that some of my books have been are not natural places, but it's full of spatial metaphors of journeys of Dante's midway through the dark woods of my life, that business of finding your way, and so many spatial metaphors and ways that I've understood the intangible world through the tangible realities of places, spaces, natural systems. But I wrote towards the beginning of the book, and it felt like a really important establishing statement. Sometimes at the birth and death of a day, the opal sky is no color that we have words for, the gold shading into blue without the intervening green that is halfway between these colors, the fiery warm colors that are not apricot or crimson or gold, the light morphing second by second, so that the sky is more shades of blue than you can count as it fades from where the sun is to the far side where other colors are happening. If you look away for a moment, you miss a shade for which there will never be a term, and it is transformed into another and another. The names of the colors are slams cages containing what doesn't belong there, and this is often true of language generally, of the words like woman, man, child, adult, safe, strong, free, true, black, white, rich, poor. We need the words, but use them best, knowing they're containers, forever spilling over and breaking open. Something is always beyond. Oh, thanks. I really, really liked that passage. And that idea of liminality, you know, or trying to describe things yeah. that are sort of in between words and categories. And it's such an interesting thing. You have to use words, and some words like green is such a broad, you know, or horse is such a broad word that you have to accept the inexactness and that the things where that are political categories are also always full of contradictions. And one of my touchstone catchphrases is um, categories are leaky. You know, all presidents of the United States have been men, but what it means to be a man is a complicated thing. And man is a leaky category because gender as you know, as a category is fluid. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that seems so on exactly, exactly on point, you know, to, to what your sort of core of this book is about, you know, that like part of there's, in other words, there's so much, so much power, political power and otherwise comes from naming and the divisions that are created when you name things. Yeah, and sometimes the divisions, sometimes the connections, and there's, and it's interesting, you know, I can talk to somebody, we're divided because we're different races, we're united because we're the same gender, or because we both love, I don't know, Juna Barnes or something, and this constant process, and we have to speak categorically, language is categories, and we have to recognize the imperfection of that, that something is always eluded, and not let the categories be so comprehensive that and so airtight. How how do you how do you deal with these things that flow and change and the way what feminism meant in eighteen fifty and nineteen fifty and twenty twenty and uh, what happens when we use the same word for different things and and um, you know we it, it's important to get your language right and sometimes as a society we invent new words workplace sexual harassment mansplaining intersectional that let us do work we didn't do before and sometimes we have to get 
get rid of old words because they're so problematic, either because they're discriminatory or because they obscure more than they reveal about what's going on. So, Rebecca, as you discuss in this book and as you're talking about now, you're known for your writing about and against violence against women, especially Men Explain Things to Me, which came out in 2008, and also in our parent publication, Lit Hub. And your work famously prompted the coining of the term mansplaining and, and recollections of my non-existences. I mean, one way that I understood this book is that it's the story of how you became the person who wrote Men Explain Things to Me. And you write about feminism in this book as a topic you, quote, couldn't stay away from, that kind of chose you. And I wonder how you see that having changed for yourself or having changed for others. How do you see writing about feminism changing under Trump? So I don't know how much it's changed under Trump, but having a rapist as president definitely says a lot. (laughs) Maybe that we should have a woman president really soon, like, you know, January of next year would is my personal preference. And it's interesting because Me Too, which began in October of 2017, is often seen as the beginning of something. And I feel like it's the not even a culmination, but the next phase of something. And I see that the new new feminism is always rising out of old feminism, that what uh, the groundwork we had laid so that women were newspaper editors and TV producers and judges and college presidents and et cetera, created spaces in which we could have smarter, better conversations about what was going on and more people were participating in which the kind of stories I was told weren't didn't matter and didn't happen and I wasn't a credible witness to, there were people willing to listen to them. And so we've been, this change that, you know, there's there's a wonderful phrase from the geologist Clarence King, punctuated equilibrium, that I think applies to feminism, where there's like long, slow change and then suddenly a kind of earthquake. And I feel like we've had a big rupture earthquake, but I don't know that Trump per se has changed anything, just made it all more glaringly obvious. But as so many other things did, as Bill Cosby and Weinstein and the rest, how urgently we need to change everything because this is a nightmare that's destroying people's lives and violating all the lies and pretenses that we have an equal society in which people have equal access to the law and equal protection under the law. Now, you brought up politics, and I thought we would ask you, um, maybe you could talk about who you're interested in in the primary. And we also wanted, we we came across a New York Times interview with you where you wrote um, a quote from you. uh, You said, writing about politics at this moment sort of feels like being stranded in the shallows. What do you mean by that? You know, writing about politics is writing about what happened yesterday, what should matter tomorrow, who these players are. And for me, politics is on the surface. Culture is what's underneath that shapes politics, shapes our sense of should women have jurisdiction over their own bodies? Does the climate matter? Should we plan for quarterly profits for corporations or seven generations? You know, those are the underlying things. And it often feels that in trying to put out the brush fires right now, you're not getting at the deeper questions Hmm. about who are we, how did we get here, where do we go from here. And sometimes sometimes it goes deeper. My favorite essay last year was a Lit Hub piece 
called When the Hero is the Problem, looking at the pa- at a pattern across a particular movie, the way Greta uh, Thunberg was being framed, the way we want our stories to be about these great exceptional heroes, usually macho, usually with masculine virtues, who are going to come and save us, whereas the way that change actually works is that the hero is actually the collective, we do it together, um, and that the virtues that make you really good at making change happen are often the virtues traditionally regarded as feminine, the ability to build and support and inspire and encourage and resolve the conflicts in a community. You know, that thing from your grade school report card works well in groups. That's and, your thing, Sugi. You're always talking about how to write about the collective. Well, I am interested in that. I think that it's really hard. And it's one of the things I really appreciate about your writing, uh, the way that individuals relate to groups, whether they're part of them, whether they're outsiders, um, whether those groups are actually themselves minorities. And, you know, thinking about what you're saying here, you know, we read your recent Guardian piece endorsing Elizabeth Warren as your dream candidate. And that, you know, that's basically the headline, my, my dream candidate exists and her name is Elizabeth Warren. And you touted her quote, big structural mom energy. And just listening to you talk about the the feminine qualities of, you know, works well in groups. I remember that report card. Um, you know, I'm curious, why did you decide to endorse a primary candidate? Yeah, no, what I said about Elizabeth Warren, she has a deeply radical vision while being a deeply pragmatic person, a person with all those famous plans about here's exactly how we can actually do it. Here's how we can pay for it. And so, you know, there's the radical stuff we all recognize, the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, et cetera. But I think there's something deeper talking about getting out of the shallows in how she's running her campaign and the ways that she's talking. I think at the heart of who she is and what she wants to do is this profound commitment and value and feeling that you could describe as ethical or spiritual and she said it many times more or less that everybody matters i want to build a world in which we recognize that everybody matters everybody deserves a chance everyone should be safe and well and that's you know we hear a lot about socialism and you know equality and etc but that's really you know it often comes with vitriol and shutting other people up and punitiveness and stuff and there's a deep generosity there but also how she's run her campaign and acknowledging ideas from uh, other politicians so you know she's she's acknowledging that she's um taken the best ideas which is really different than pres- positioning yourself as the lone savior and the only pure person who has all the good ideas and had them since day one and when she makes a mistake she corrects it publicly there was this beautiful thing that happened she put out the most comprehensive disability rights plan we've ever seen at that level and the disability activist community said hey this is great but you got you didn't get this part right. And she listened really hard and changed it. And we just see that over and over again, this deep listening, you know, and just that integration of other voices and using her voice, you know, as a conduit for other voices and other visions is a kind of inclusiveness and also saying, it's not about me. Some, she was asked, like, if you don't win, but your ideas do, how would you be with that? Because there's been a certain sector in the election that's like very 
possessive about who owns ideas and she's like that's all I want I would be great with that it's not about me so I think how she's running her campaign which has a lot of people of color young and a lot of young black women uh, in leadership positions, including a young poet nominated for the National Book Award, which is not what you see in most campaigns. Young black <laughs> women poets nominated for the National Book Award. Thank you. And I feel like she's modeling what politics could be. And I feel like her campaign has been already victorious in a lot of ways in representing here's how we do it differently. Here's how you here's how a politician in a campaign can be listening based, can be inclusive, can be egalitarian. You've talked about your activism rising out of love. And you, and you also, in the book, talk about um, your queer friends who, quote, modeled for you the radical beauty of refusing your assignment, which also goes back to this idea of liminality that we were talking about earlier. Could you talk to us a little bit uh, about the place optimism about people holds across your body of work? I'm, I am actually anti-optimism, just as I'm anti-pessimism. <laughs> okay. I see. I see both of them as forms of certainty. Maybe optimism, that's a category that we don't. We don't have to have that binary category. We should find a different word then. Well, I use hope, but <laughs> yeah. and with hope I mean, you know, a kind of positive engagement with uncertainty. Optimism thinks everything will be fine no matter what we do and gets us off the hook, just as pessimism says it's all going to hell no matter what we do, which equally gets us off the hook. And I want to leave us on the hook where we have some responsibility <laughs> because we have some power because we don't know what's going to happen. So let's see if we can shape it. And that is what my book, Hope in the Dark, was about, about looking at how change happens, how often people who are supposed to be powerless, and this goes to your enthusiasm and mind for collectives, you know, band together and, and slavery, build the civil rights movement, get women the vote, get same-sex marriage rights, um, get AIDS treatment, and, um, you know, stop um, – climate destroying fossil fuel pipelines and um you know so i'm about hope instead which is the sense that we don't know what's going to happen we do we can in that lack of certainty is a sense sometimes of possibility that means that if we try we might get uh you know we might win something and it's worth trying so that's kind of how I go at it. And you asked another thing that's really important. One of the things that has been such a huge part of my life since I was in my early teens is gay men. And, you know, I'm we're just recording here so you can't see me getting down on my knees and thinking <laughs> some some great feather boa wearing trans god for this. But what they gave me, first of all, was a sense that there's nothing wrong with men. There's something wrong with how we define masculinity for straight men that, uh, you know, all kinds of, you know, and this is not all gay men. Everybody has the right to be horrible and boring. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, well, that's another one of my axioms along with categories are leaky. Everyone has the right to be an asshole, no matter how oppressed and marginalized. And um, But I was surrounded, you know, I grew up in a famously queer city with men who refused the assignment of heteronormative masculinity. And part of that was about being shut out of uh, marriage back then and conventional family structures and really recognizing 
this beautiful thing that I don't think we give enough lips, you know, enough recognition to, which is that the support networks that really matter are not necessarily your biological kin. Sometimes they're wonderful. Sometimes they're trying to destroy you. Um, you know, they're not necessarily marriage, which I think ends in divorce 50% of the time in the U.S., but it's often these networks of friends and that I think just who you are as a friend is a much more fluid, open, you know, it's an inherently polyamorous situation among other things, mm. um, you know, not in a polyamorous erotic way, but, a, but you know, a lot of people can matter to you. And so I just felt so blessed to grow up in a place where people were modeling that you don't have to accept your gender assignment. And these men saying, we don't have to be what men are supposed to be, help me, as did the dykes on bikes and all the lesbians around me say, I don't have to accept what femininity is supposed to be, and I don't have to accept the conventional female fate that if you don't get married and have children, you failed somehow. A life among non-straight people has been just so liberatory and helpful and inspiring and beneficial for me, and it's something I want to see and tried to bring up that we benefit so much from each other indirect. My, you know, your liberation benefits me, your oppression does the opposite that this is, you know, you can't do it just out of self-interest, but we can recognize how interwoven we are and how we model for each other, what the possibilities are. And that happens another way in that I am a woman who has not technically been raped. Um, although God knows it seems like, most of my friends have been, and I'm a woman who read about horrific murders by spouses and strangers in the last 24 hours that I do pretty much every day without going out of my way to find them. And I also feel like the opposite is true. We recognize that you don't have to have actually been shot in the back by a policeman to be a black person who has reason to fear the police. You don't have to be a rape survivor to have patriarchal violence impact you as a woman, uh, we are impacted by what happens to other people. The good things make us see that could be, make us see them and say that could be us. But so do the bad things, and I, that's so much of what being a young woman is about: is constant instructions that lots of people want to kill you, but we're not going to do anything about it. So here's how you have to organize your life around trying to minimize them killing you without ever making them feel that it's a bad thing they want to kill you or complaining or doing anything unladylike like that. And obviously those are not exactly the instructions I've obeyed, but those have been the standard operating instructions for young women that lots of people want to do horrific and hideous things possibly unto death to you and it's your job to navigate it and also we didn't say it and this isn't happening and if you don't trust men and try and make their lives brighter and more sparkly there's something wrong with you rebecca did i get did i get that right <laughs> that sounds fantastic <laughs> uh thank you so much for joining us and we want to tell our listeners don't forget to check out her new memoir recollections of my non-existence well, thank you so much. This is almost my first interview for this book. I still feel I had no idea what I was doing and how people would receive it. So this is very reassuring. And apparently I have something to say about it. So thank you for making space for me to say it. And thank you, LitHub. I love you. <laughs> thank you so much. That 
that's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. Thanks to the students in the University of Missouri, Kansas City's podcasting practicum for their work on the show. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type in fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast, where we post links to our show notes, which will include some of the readings we talked about today with Rebecca Solnit. Happy reading, happy writing, and don't forget to wash your hands. <laughs>